every society, every group, both includes people, by definition, otherwise it wouldn't be a group, and excludes people. There is no such thing as a completely inclusive group. It, it doesn't exist. You can't have that. Now, of course, what's very interesting in our culture is inclusion in certain circles has become the catch cry of the ultimate good for a group, which is brilliant. All that shows, well, what that shows is that we as a culture, as Tom Holland, the ancient historian, shows, our culture has been massively shaped by Christianity and the drive towards inclusion is explicitly linked to a vision of how communities work that is shaped by Christianity. Uh, now you say, well, how is that the case? Well, in this chapter in Romans, we're going to explore the original roots of a vision for a genuinely inclusive community and an inclusive society. Given that vision, however, and the reality that we always still exclude people, you've just got to stop and say, on what basis are people excluded? And on what basis are people included? And what we'll see in Romans, and, it's, and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, and it's incredibly significant, in Romans, inclusion is by grace, not We're set. Grace, not works. Yes. Birth. What rhymes with grace? Race. No one wants to. Did no one want to say it? Were you all thinking it? But thought in this polite society we can't mention the R word. Grace, not race. Uh, and you say, well, how was that significant back in the day? Well, it was very significant because Romans, Roman society, Jewish society, was divided on ethnic grounds. You were either a Jew or you were a non-Jew, a Gentile. And in, and in uh, much of Jewish culture, uh, the people of God, those whom God considered righteous, those who were in God's family, was entirely limited to people who were ethnically Jewish. Okay, so you were saved by race. Now, uh, someone over there, I think uh, Rolf had the idea, said works or the law. Uh, and sometimes you'll say, oh, well, the Jews really believed they were saved on the basis of the law observance. Not really. Rather, Torah or the law was actually a, uh, the best way to think of it is as a badge of membership. So uh, maybe in our culture, um, the Torah was like your old school tie. I don't know if any, that probably doesn't work here either. Um, it was the thing you wore that told everybody you were of the certain ethnic group and because of that you belonged to God. So the, the law, the Torah, wasn't the thing you relied on to save you. It was rather a public demonstration and proclamation to everybody that you were in a particular kind of relationship with God that ultimately came down to your genetics. Okay. Now, uh, that's, um, that's significant. Now, th the question then is, when the Apostle Paul comes along... He says the gospel reveals that God is righteous, that is that God is, 
completely faithful as a judge, as the God who will both punish sin, like this is what God has to do, this is what a judge has to do, punish evil, be faithful and consistent with their previous pronouncements. You can't change your mind. You can't chop and change. Uh, well, today this is a sin, tomorrow it isn't a sin. No, God has to be faithful. God has to be um, punish evil but also at the same time god has to forgive people and we looked at that two weeks ago and we're going to look at it again over the next few weeks god has to forgive uh, and he can't discriminate or show partiality so god can't be a racist so he can't be he can't show partiality uh, he's got to forgive people he's got to address uh, and judge sin and he's got to be faithful to his previous pronouncements those are the four requirements of a judge now this is how the argument works. There's a lot of ifs here, a lot of conditional statements. So follow along with me if you can. If the gospel reveals that God is righteous, and if this means that he is faithful to his previous promises and commitments, and if, therefore, he is going to be faithful to his promises to the Jews, that is, to Abraham, so God had made these promises to the Jews, through Abraham, that they were his special people, and he's not going to change his mind on that. Does this mean that Gentile followers of Jesus must become Jewish to be included in God's covenant family? Do you see the logic there? Another way of putting it is, do you need to be circumcised in order to be a follower of Jesus and authentically part of God's family? Let's breathe a sigh of relief all you uncircumcised males? The answer is no. The answer is no. Uh, so this is, this is the answer to all those questions. Yes, God will be faithful, and Paul is going to answer this. God has to be faithful to the Jews. Praise God. God loves Israel. He loves the Jews. He is faithful to them. They remain his people. But no, it doesn't mean you must become Jewish because God's promise and plan always included Jew and Gentile on the basis of faith, of grace, not race. This is how Paul asks the question at the start of the, this chapter. What then shall we say? Have we found Abraham to be our forefather according to the flesh? Now, according to the flesh means on the basis of race, of genetics, of circumcision. Here's a quick summary of the argument. Paul is going to argue that Abraham was a Gentile because he was uncircumcised when he first became a follower of Yahweh. When God called Abraham and brought him into a covenant relationship with himself, was Abraham circumcised at that point? No. Abraham's your everyday common or garden pagan wandering around the Middle East, and God says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of the nations. Through you, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to fill the world with your offspring. Uh, and then he gives them a whole bunch of covenants. And then he says, after Abraham's left everything, signed up, committed on the journey with God, then God draws him aside one night and says, that was the good news. <laughs> now, let me tell you what it involves. Snip, snip. And he gets circumcised after. So the, made, the, the gift, if you would call it that, of Torah, the badge 
of membership, an old school tie would have been far preferable, I imagine, but the key badge of membership for Jewish males to show the world that they belonged to Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, was circumcision, followed by observance of all the requirements of Torah, of the law. And they got that badge of membership only after Abraham had moved from being a Gentile to being a believer on the basis of grace. Make sense? Let's go through the text. Uh, verses 2 to 8. Paul is going to say that it is not works but faith that bring the covenant blessings of forgiveness. Let's have a look at that. Uh, where's it gone? Ah. Verse 2. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. So it's not like God, Abraham had earned God's favor. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So the key in Abraham's faith was belief. To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. You see it here? Their faith is credited as righteousness. So Abraham is declared righteous, is made righteous, is, has his sins forgiven, is included in the family of God because he believed, because he trusted, is what it says. And this is the main covenant blessing that we are forgiven for all our transgressions and our wrongdoings. This is the great blessing, verse 7 and 8. Uh, and by the way, if you want to know how to be happy, the other way to translate that word blessed is happy. If you want to know what a truly happy, great, wonderful life is, it's to be forgiven. And Paul here quotes the psalm. He says, blessed or happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Now, I mean, one of the problems in our culture these days <laughs> is we, none of us think that we, well, none of us own and live with the impact that we sin. We don't sin. We're all victims and we're fundamentally good and sometimes we just do bad things. But we don't, we don't, we're not evil. We're not bad. We're just sad and we need help. And God, if there's a God, is not a God who judges. God's job is to unconditionally affirm us and accept us as we are uh, and then heal us. Now, both those things are right. We are a mess. We are sad. We need healing. And God does unconditionally accept us and heal us. But that's, that's only half the story. The other half is, God is to be God, as we've talked about often here, God must judge evil. Otherwise, he's, you know, what do you do with it? A, a God who doesn't judge evil is, is no God worth following, really. It would be like a parent who just allows their child and other children and to commit great evil in the world and not punish them. Um, and of course, you and I, uh, as we looked at two weeks ago, you and I are 
are every bit as compromised morally and spiritually as anyone in the world. Sin is an equal opportunity employer. We're all included in this group of people who are a mess, who are glorious and wonderful for sure, but also irreparably, tragically flawed. So the great blessing, Paul says, is forgiveness of our sin that comes to us by faith. And then he goes on and he goes, just in case you didn't get it, it's not circumcision, but faith that includes you in Abraham's family. So again, great news. It's not uh, bearing the, the uh, external badge of membership of ethnicity that is significant. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Now, maybe for you who are Gentiles, this doesn't feel that significant. But for me, who's a Jew, ethnically, uh, who has found Abraham to be my forefather according to the flesh, and in my Jewish family, this is incredibly significant, right? So who is connected to God? Um, and is this blessedness only for this group? Another way of putting it is, the way ethnic Israel answered the question, who do we include, who do we exclude, was on the basis of who wears the, who wears the uniform of circumcision, who's got the badge that's based, based on outward performance uh, pointing to a, an ethnic identity. And Paul says, we have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still circumcised. So then... He is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised. So uh, that's, that's uh, very significant that it is not wearing the badge that includes you in the family. And then, the fi then in uh, verse 13 to 15, Paul's going to continue this argument. By the way, Paul's arguably, without a doubt, well, without a doubt, he's a theological genius who was a uh, brilliant Jewish scholar trained at the feet of Gamaliel, the great Jewish writer and thinker and scholar, who then had an encounter with Jesus, came to view Jesus as a crucified and resurrected Messiah, and on that basis rethought all of his Jewish history and theology. And so it's a, it's a profound, extraordinarily deep rethinking. But this is what he then says. The, the point of Judaism, following on the promise of Abraham, was that the Jewish nation would be those who ruled the world. God would establish his kingdom in Jerusalem uh, under a, the King David or an heir of King David. And then the whole, all the nations would come to Israel. And Israel would be the center of a new humanity and rulers of the world. Um, and uh, Paul says, hey, guess what? That is going to happen to people, who, not who are ethnically Jewish uh, and observe Torah, but those who have faith. So verse 13 to 15, have a look at this. It was not through the Torah, the law, that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, 
but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the Torah are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless. Hmm. Sometimes I've had this experience every time I've taught through the book of Romans. Uh, I feel like sometimes in the Protestant world or in our world, we've learned this lesson so well that the force of it doesn't strike us. Okay. But the force of this is for the first time in human history, there is a answer being given to who are the truly blessed who are the who is true humanity who's the in-group with god and for the first time in human history that's not being answered in ethnic or tribal terms it's being answered in terms of faith who do you trust it's nothing to do with an immutable uh, characteristic that you're either born with or without so up until this time, every little, every tribal group who thought they were connected with God had their own God, and you were connected to that God by being born into the culture. And then along comes Jesus and Paul, who unpacks this under the guidance of the Holy Spirit and says, no, no, now for the first time ever, there's a truly global human family where inclusion is something that you can freely choose or not choose. That's the philosophical and emotional and cultural and organizational impetus behind our drive as a community for diversity and inclusion and equity. Comes straight from Romans 4. So next time you're at work and someone talks about inclusion, you go, huh, that's right. We believe we have these inclusion policies because Abraham is the father of anyone who trusts God. And I'm like, yes, I'm sure your fellow workers will love that idea. But that's where it comes from. That, that, that Abraham, right from the start, God's plan was a community based on grace, not race. That you could choose to join the people of God. It wasn't something you were born into. Um, and since then, we have worked as a culture to ensure that these um, immutable characteristics that you are born with should not exclude you and disadvantage you in our culture. And it comes straight out of Christianity, which is wonderful. Uh, it is just wonderful. So um, the climax of the argument in verse 16 and 17 is that Gentiles can become part of Abraham's family by faith, not Jewish conversion, because God's plan was always to have a global family based on grace, not race. God hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't suddenly gone, oh, I think I might just come up with a different view here. I might, uh, I might, go, I might do something completely different. Um, uh, God has always planned... Um, for this to be the case. Uh, in verse 16, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. Father Abraham, the father of the Jews, was a Gentile when he became the father of the Jews. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. 
He is our Father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. That's the climax of the argument. The question then is, how did Abraham have this faith? And that is a question for you and for me and for our culture to think about as well. So how do you actually come to trust God? What is faith based on? When we say we want to build a genuinely inclusive community and we, we have this vision, well, how do you, how do you have that faith? Um, well, verse 18 to 22, it's wonderful and so incredibly uh, significant even for us. Like, uh, well, it was firstly despite scientific appearances. So I'm, I'm not sure you may not know the story of Abraham particularly well. Um, Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. So, um, uh, this is the story told in Genesis 12 and reiterated in Genesis 15 and 17. Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be, like supernumerous. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. They understood the basics of reproduction. Uh, Sarah was 100 years old. He was 100 years old. Uh, even back in the day, they got it. She, you know, menopause is a one-way street, and she was well and truly past uh, her reproductive career. Uh, that was behind her, and she hadn't had any kids. And he looked at the evidence physically, and he knew clearly. He wasn't naive. He knew this was a problem. But he didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. He said, okay, God, you've promised that even though I'm dead reproductively and Sarah's dead reproductively, you've promised that you'll give me an heir, you'll give us an heir, and through that heir you'll create a global family of faith. So he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That's the definition of faith. That's the, that's the thing that connects us with God, is being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he's promised. Trust the promises of God. That's it. That's simple. Now, of course, the right question to ask at this point is, well, what has God actually promised? <laughs> what has he promised us? I have found over many years that many people get disappointed with God and they feel that God has let them down and when I talk to them it turns out they've been trusting God and expecting God to do for them what he's never promised to do for them because <laughs> this is how life works you have a whole bunch of good things that God promises to do for us and then there's a whole bunch of stuff that God does for us, but that he doesn't promise to do. But sometimes he does for us, sometimes he does for others. And what we tend to do is we tend to think, God, you've got to keep doing this stuff for me. You've got to keep giving me all these blessings. 
but he doesn't have, he hasn't promised, like he hasn't promised that we'll live to a ripe old age. He hasn't promised us health and wealth and fame and fortune. But sometimes he, he gives many of us those things. What has God promised to give us? Forgiveness of sin, resurrection from the dead, inclusion in his family. That's amazing. That's the promise that we are to trust as Abraham trusted. It's, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. How do we do that, though? How do we actually do that? Well, the great promise is life from death. And Paul will argue this very clearly. He knows all of the Christian faith hangs on the resurrection. We're in a better place than Abraham. Abraham had to trust looking forward that God would do this. On what basis can you and I trust that God will bring life from the death for you and for me? We can see that he's done it already in Jesus Christ. He's done it already. So our faith, we look back to the cross of Jesus and we see there God has been faithful to his promise. And if God has raised Jesus from the dead, then I can trust him to raise myself from the dead. If God has raised Jesus from the dead, then he can take care of my sickness and my sin and the injustice I experience, and he can make all things new. That's the great offer that we have. The implication of this is that Christianity is for everyone. It's for everyone. We are to trust the promise and power of God to save us through the death and resurrection of his Son. And in your small groups or in your own devotional life this week, let me encourage you to read Genesis 15. And I'll tell you why that's so significant. In Genesis 15, after this promise has been made to Abraham, we see uh, how God enacts this, this promise, right? So um, bear with me for three minutes as I read from Genesis 15. This is the promise. So God has just given this promise, reiterated it to Abraham, and Abraham's gone, yeah, God, I believe, but look, I'm barren. I don't know how this is all going to happen. And by the way, Abraham failed spectacularly to, uh, in, in all sorts of ways. The first thing he did was um, he got himself a concubine because he didn't really trust God. But God does this after giving this promise. Um, he said, I'm going to go through a covenant ceremony with you. And uh, uh, that is what he does in Genesis 15. And I'm going to wrap it up there because I feel like I'm in a losing battle. Yeah, I'm getting it. So have a look at it and maybe we'll look at it another time. I'll post the final five minutes of this on Circle for you to uh, contemplate. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you for this family of faith. And we pray that uh, we will model and be for this world uh, a community that is radically inclusive that all those who trust jesus as the one who will bring us life from death will will find a home here and we pray there will be a community that holds out that promise to this world um, and that uh, that will live that out in all the profound and radical social and cultural and personal implications it has amen <laughs>